The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I have a very interesting guest with me, a gentleman I met at a small farms local food conference in Wisconsin. We have a former commercial airline pilot, David Thomas, who is now a farmer. You gave up the glamorous flying life and instead moved to a farm in Wisconsin, and you are sustaining yourself, and I want to hear all about it. Welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Well, David, tell me, what was the point where you said, I don't want to fly anymore, I really want to have a piece of land? Well, I purchased this uh, farm in 1986, and it came as a result of having lived in the city and actually having some rental property, and I did that for a very short time, less than a year, and quickly realized that I need to be out into the country. I was uh, working on uh, farms when I was in high school and had a real uh, close connection to the land and, and developed some insights there and always kind of wanted to get back to it. So I had this farm and continued flying, and um, one day uh, while uh, uh, flying across the North Pacific at uh, 3 in the morning, I, uh, I figured out that this, isn't, uh, this has been a good life, but uh, it's time to move on and transition to something else. And so I uh, returned to the farm here, and now I'm growing organic vegetables and grains and trying to do it in a very low-impact kind of way with draft horses and sheep and goats to make the soil richer and uh, add back and instead of just always taking out. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that you're working on a master's degree in sustainable community development while you're also farming. And I should also ask you how large your farm is and, and what you're doing with the crops that you raise. So let's start with the fact that you've gone back to school to work on this master's in sustainable community development. What led you down that path? Well, that's interesting. I also got interested when I was in college working uh, on my uh, bachelor degree on economics. Uh, got interested in ecological uh, economics. It was just a beginning at that point to be uh, understood as a fairly serious discipline. And when one understands that the economy is a subset of the environment, uh, one quickly realizes that, that uh, communities can't grow forever. And so, you know, the opposite of a growing community, is, uh, which is unsustainable, is a sustainable community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the future of a healthy community is going to rest on developing some kind of no-growth, what Herman Daly would call a, a steady-state economy. And uh, we can do that on a local level. So I became interested in that and that led to an interest in sustainability, and I joined the local regional sustainability groups and was a board member for a long time and and uh, also realized that the word sustainability was being uh, manipulated a little bit. And so I thought if I could study sustainable community development and become well-versed in those kinds of terms and, and phrases, then I could go out into my own community 
and see if I could help them move and transition toward a healthier future. Well, how do you see the word sustainable being co-opted personally? Oh, gosh. Uh, I should let your listeners know that Melinda gave a, a wonderful presentation on greenwashing uh, at that local conference where we met, and many, many of those same tools that major corporations use for greenwashing a product will also use that for the term sustainability. In fact, they won't just use green, they'll use terms like sustainability and sustainable. This is sustainable and this is green when it actually is not. And I also find that municipalities will use the same, use the same technique in trying to facilitate and encourage and support more growth in their community at the same time appeasing the environmentalists and uh, by saying that we're, actually we're doing it in a sustainable way or we're trying to be sustainable. And there's a few sustainable frameworks out there that promote growth and yet are seen by the public who doesn't really know oftentimes about these definitions of sustainability. The public thinks that they're um, actually sustainable. So I've seen it done on the municipal level. I've seen it done on the corporate level. And actually I've seen it done on the farm level too, where some farmers at farmers markets will actually say this is uh, natural or sustainable. And if you question them just a little bit, you find out that it's nothing of the kind. Mm -hmm. So what is sustainable community development? What is your definition of it? Well, you know, when you put the word development on anything, and this is the college actually using that term, um, it usually means growth. Mm-hmm. So when you when you put the term sustainability with things like growth or it's either uh, smart growth or it's sustainable growth or it's uh, green growth, uh, those are all oxymorons and, <laughs> and they they just simply do not fit together unless you're trying to manipulate someone. So whenever you hear those two terms together, you know the flags should go up and and your radar should be turned on and your smoke detector should be uh, you know right. well calibrated. But a sustainable, a sustainable com- community is uh, essentially a community that is in a no-growth situation where they provide their own local food from local sources, their own energy supply, supplies, uh, uh, locally uh, uh, built and manufactured to a certain extent, housing with uh, local materials available, and some very low-impact, uh, low-carbon transportation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I see the horse-drawn streetcar coming back in future years here. So you know, the word sustainable is very interesting. It's, it comes from the Latin sustire, which means to hold up. And then, of course, the first question is, well, hold up for how long? So there's right. a time element to sustainability. And, of course, you know, high-speed particle physicists would say that uh, a fusion reaction is sustainable if it lasts for a billionth of a second. <sighs> You know, and then uh, some kind of economist might say, well, sustainable uh, economy, sustainable growth, well, he's looking at it in terms of a quarter or or six months or a year. You know, a a conservation biologist might say, well, sustainable might be the conditions where a uh, species can evolve, uh, and that would be 10,000 years. So, you know, you really have to ask, uh, what is the time element when someone uses the word sustainable? And, And that opens it up for a lot of interpretation and manipulation, unfortunately. Well, I was really glad. You know, I presented one model of sustainability that had three equal points, one, of course, being the ecological piece, the other being the economic piece, and the other being the humane piece. 
And you had raised your hand and said, you know, really, it's that environmental piece, the ecological piece, that needs to be much larger because we can't sustain humanity and we can't have economic growth without having the environment protected first and foremost. And I thought, what a brilliant observation. That really needs to be our central focus for sustainability. That's correct. And I really appreciate your receptivity to those ideas. Uh, you know, you, the model that you that you put on the screen there is a fairly traditional model uh, that's been used over and over again. And that kind of model, by downplaying the environment and making it equal to social and economic circles, is done for a reason, and that reason is so that we can sort of downplay the major impact that, uh, or the major role that the environment plays. And so those three circles intersecting, and then that intersecting area is called sustainability. But, but the real picture, the, if you want to look at reality, the real picture is there's a big circle called the environment, and inside that is the social circle with people and, and social capital and our connections and relationships and cultures and societies. And then within that, we create a number of different types of economies. Mm -hmm. So it should be a series of concentric circles with the environment being the largest and uh, instead of the environment being equal to the other two because that would be putting the cart before the horse. This is why I knew I wanted to interview you. It's really a great model, and it's a wonderful vision and one that I hope more of us can truly embrace. Well, okay, let's get onto your farm now for a moment. I want to know how many acres you have. And something that you had said in a conversation we had earlier was that present-day farmland has largely become a vehicle to convert oil to food. And it's a very wise observation. Talk to me a little bit about your specific farm and then this much broader vision of what farmland was and has become. Uh, my farm is uh, a couple hundred acres. Uh, it's mostly second growth hardwoods, upland hardwood forest with some conifers. And uh, there's about uh, 25 acres of uh, tillable land. And I use that mostly for pasture and uh, hay. And I'm trying to improve that soil with, with the animals I have. I'm primarily vegetarian, but I'm using the livestock to just create better soil conditions and improve the soil. And that also includes the gardens then, because I'll take that and compost the uh, waste from the animals to enrich the garden. And so I won't have to pull any nutrients in from the outside. I can attempt to close the loops and the circles and, and try to be as, as self-reliant and self-sufficient as I, I can up here. You know, Gandhi said, be the change uh, you wish to see in the world. And for those that want to be a good role model and walk the talk, one has to look at these sort of things. So that's what I've tried to do with the farm here. I've got gardens, orchards, uh, bramble patches, uh, and then, of course, there's fields and, and hay, and then I heat with wood, so I have an um, adequate woodlot uh, out there to uh, provide myself with energy. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm hooked up to the grid. Uh, I'm looking at other systems, but one has to understand that renewable energy, no matter what the source is simply not going to sustain a consumer society like we have. Mm -hmm. So my ideal would be to construct a small uh, energy efficient, uh, not just off the grid, but non-electric home. And of course, that's not a new idea. Humans have been living in non-electric homes for hundreds of thousands of years, and it's only been in the last 80 uh, 
that we have become addicted to electricity and, and mass production and the consumer society. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with David Thomas, who is a former commercial airline pilot and now a farmer in Wisconsin. And David, you mentioned you, know, you left this former life and are now walking the talk. And I wonder, with regard to your farmland, is it easy for you to produce food for yourself and for others? Are you, are you selling it through a CSA? Or are you doing any kind of market sales? And what kind of fossil fuel inputs, if any, are you using on your land? I retired several years ago, and so I'm just now bringing up to speed the gardens and, and uh, the orchard is uh, probably about another year away from producing. And my experience here in my attempt uh, to move more towards uh, sustainable uh, organic gardening is that it's very difficult, and particularly for someone who does not come from a family of farmers and, and gardeners. It's not impossible, but it's, it's difficult. And there's an enormous amount of time and energy and preparation and at the end of the season, uh, harvesting and canning and putting up and, and that sort of thing. So right now, I'm attempting to experiment in a way that produces enough food for myself that would keep me you know, healthy for an entire year. And anything beyond that, in a couple of years from now, I think I'll have surplus food then to bring down to the local farmer's market. But um, I'll do it that way first. I'll attempt to be a good role model and, and try to grow my own food first for my own purposes, and then uh, any surplus is going to go back to the community. Well, you mentioned that this life is difficult. Do you think that's why we've moved away from that? I asked you yesterday when we had had a brief conversation, I said, are, are you happier doing what you're doing now as opposed to what you were doing before? And you said, oh, yes. So you're living a harder life, and yet you describe yourself as being happier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that an interesting um, juxtaposition of thoughts and, and feelings? I think it's not surprising, though. I think uh, being outdoors and uh, living close to the land and the satisfaction that comes with producing one's own uh, food, and to a certain extent, one's own energy. I'm actually using renewable energy here. I mean, wood is stored sunlight, and I've put up you know, almost 10 cord of, of wood cut, split, and stack. But it, it's challenging, and even though it's a good life, it's certainly not easy. And I think that's why communities in the past, before fossil fuels and electricity, were a little bit more tight-knit, a little closer. We depended on each other. Mm-hmm. Many things, and we were we were economically tied together, and now suddenly, with cheap oil and cheap energy, we have become more independent, and so we don't have to rely on each other as much. And I think we see a certain dissolution and decline in communities uh, because of that. Right. So, um, yeah. So it's an it's an interesting set of, of feelings. I I'm much more uh, content uh, here than, um, than I ever was. And yet it continues to be um, challenging. But, you know, the, the greater the challenges, the greater the rewards. And that's why I, I think I enjoy it so much out here. I think it's really important for our listeners to know that, you know, one of the barriers that I see to young people going back to farming or even somebody who's midlife and saying, you know, I don't want to make this 
hour commute to the office anymore, I want to live on a farm, is that you do have health benefits that were transferred from your former job. And that is a true blessing. God forbid you should need medical care. But I think that it's certainly our whole health care system has to be folded into this. And do we want to have more self-sufficient agrarian-based economies, local and regional, and what would that take from a societal level? Certainly we need to have some sort of health care for the nation, and that's my opinion. Maybe you have different thoughts on that. No, I think we're in agreement on that. There's no question that we need universal health care, and I'm just disappointed and puzzled with the American people who seem now to not want universal health care. Uh, I think every it, it's, a, it's a right. I mean, if we can have universal defense and if we can have uh, universal monetary systems and we can have universal highways and all of that, all of those things we all agree on, uh, why can't we have uh, people uh, taking care of each other in a, in a health care kind of way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Uh, the other the other part of this is that uh, you know Thomas Jefferson thought that the perfect society was agrarian based and and of course that was during the middle of the industrial revolution and we all took the easy route by adopting mass production and mass consumption and, and electricity and we moved quickly away i think in 1929 half the country was still uh, on farms and and now today of course uh, only 2% uh, less than 2% of the population actually Farms half the world now, as of last year, is uh, is in urban uh, city areas. So we're moving farther and farther away, and that's a little bit like climbing the ladder higher and higher without a firm foundation. You know, uh, my my thought is that we need to ratchet down and scale back both uh, population and uh, economic activity in order to remain within the uh, the limits of um, of our resource base. And biologists call that carrying capacity, and we have dramatically overshot carrying capacity of of the uh, of the planet of the biosphere we're now approaching 7 billion people and most scientists in the know on this would say that's closer to uh, 2 billion uh, which we can support long term population of 2 billion so we need to scale back uh, scale down and recognize that we must remain inside uh, our resource base in order to live grow healthy food and live a healthy life you know, you mentioned in our conversation in Wisconsin that you don't believe that science and technology can save us, and yet the messages that we receive in the media are absolutely that. We're heading towards even more people on the planet, and if we're going to feed them, then certainly we need science and biotechnology. It doesn't sound like you buy into that argument. No, uh, we... Uh, we are told that, that uh, we have nothing to worry about because what occurred in the past is going to occur in the future uh, with our science and technology. We went from wood-based energy system to a coal-based energy system now to an oil and natural gas-based energy system, and, and uh, people are thinking, well, we'll just continue that. At some point here, we'll develop another resource, and we'll just be fine. And yet that's, you know, what happened yesterday may not apply tomorrow. You know, Einstein said that the, uh, the level uh, at which problems were solved it cannot be solved by that kind of thinking. We must think beyond in, in another way in order to solve those kinds of problems. So, you, you know, using that kind of thinking to, to continue our you know, consumer society is just simply 
uh, isn't going to work. So um, science and technology are, are, are great things, but you know they create impacts that last for thousands of years, and yet the human mind still only looks about three days ahead and about you know thirty feet around around us. Yes, short termism, I think that's called. Yes, yes, exactly. We're, you know, our technology is long term. Our human mind is, has evolved to be uh, more short term. Yeah, and it creates a dangerous juxtaposition. <laughs> it does, and we're constantly bombarded with messages for things to buy more things, consume more things, with the promise that we'll have more friends and better quality relationships, and. These are very tempting to the human spirit. And yet what you've experienced, you know, walking away from this commercial life and walking this sustainable talk is that you're finding greater happiness by consuming less. Yes, absolutely. And most studies have shown that recently, that, um, you know, some of the richest economies in the world, if you do polls of the people, given a, a certain criteria and a certain set of questions, will poll less contented and less happy than those uh, in some uh, developing countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things uh, and material possessions don't uh, equate at some point anymore. They don't add a marginal utility to our lives. And this is certainly borne out in, in the polling and in reality, too. I mean, uh, at some point here, you know, how much is enough? And I think that's one of the questions I asked myself. How much do I really need in order to leave a, lead a healthy, content I think that's a very important question for all of us to be asking. How much is enough? Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to project your vision for the future and to leave us with a charge. Well, I guess I would say that if you're truly interested in a healthier life for future generations, then people need to um, have fewer children. They they need to think about having no children or adopting or having one or, at the most, uh, for a couple to have two as a, as a replacement. We need to scale back and scale down uh, population levels. But we also need to uh, scale down uh, economic activity. And so I would say, uh, you know, those same people should uh, think about consuming less and perhaps uh, understanding that you can be more content, more satisfied uh, by, by consuming less. And then there's the idea of becoming local and engaging back into the local community and, and encouraging and supporting that. So those are three quick ways, I think, to um, things to think about when one thinks about trying to create better community and a, and a better life for themselves. David, are you hopeful for the future? Well, now, there's a word for you, hope. Someone said once that uh, when hope dies, action begins. And, oh. Um, and so I, I think I'm more uh, a realist about the future. I think that there are going to be, with the impending peak oil crisis coming and with uh, the financial crisis not fully resolved and being a little more difficult to uh, solve here in, in the future, I think that the, the future is going to be, offer us a lot of challenges. And there's going to be some communities that make it, and there's going to be some that won't. Of course, I'm not saying anything new. This is the history of all civilizations. So um, I think I'm a realist. I try to be anyway, neither, neither pessimist or, or optimist, but just looking at the facts and trying to be an effective problem solver. And, but most of all, not expecting to make uh, large changes, but only small changes in my own life. And, and uh, I hope that 
can be a role model for, um, if successful, for, for other people in other communities. David, I want to thank you so much for that wonderful philosophical message. We've been talking with David Thomas, former commercial airline pilot, now a farmer in Wisconsin. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, and thank you so much, David, for being with me today. Thank you, Melinda. Good talking with you.